This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We did see Florida reporting new cases rising to the highest level since the pandemic began. Texas saw hospitalizations surge to more signs that the virus outbreak is worsening in some U.S. states. And meantime, you had Beijing shutting its schools on concern about new infections as China started testing all shipments of imported meat. They had a fresh outbreak that was linked to another wholesale seafood and meat market in the capital. So back with us to talk about where we are and what we need to do and how we kind of you know, deal with what's going on, especially when you come at it from different angles uh, when it comes to the virus, is Dr. William Hazeltine. He is chairman and president of Access Health International, and he joins us on the phone from Connecticut. Dr. Hazeltine, it's great to have you back with us. Um, what do you make of the most recent virus headlines? Well, I'm looking right now at what's happened in Florida. And in many ways, it was predictable. It was averaging about 500, between four and 500, 600, up to 800 cases sometimes for about a month and a half. And then starting in uh, the end of May, early June, it just started to rise. Uh, a couple of days ago, there were 2,500 new cases. Uh, and now there may be about 2,000 new cases. It's pretty serious. And what it means is that the precautions that people were taking were eased off about two weeks ago. And we're now seeing that as uh, spikes in uh, newly diagnosed infections, mostly because people are getting uh, mildly ill or seriously ill. Uh, And that's happening in many parts of the country. Some other parts, like New York City, it's still relatively uh, calm. Uh, People in New York got really scared, and they know it's important to... uh, keep social distance. Uh, but even in New York, it's, uh, people are beginning to forget. And so what have we learned about our initial response, Dr. Hazeltine, that we can maybe put into practice now? Because there is this, I think, strong resistance on the part of both government leaders and just everyday people to go back to a full-on shutdown. Yeah, I understand that. It's, uh, it's fully, fully understandable. And um, what uh, the way I look at it is the following. We paid a price, but we didn't get the benefit. That's because we didn't do it right. We didn't really enforce contact tracing and mandatory isolation. And people weren't particularly observant. All, all the people weren't observant about the precautions they were urged to take. So we never cleared the infection like a number of other countries did, or reduced it down to a very manageable level of, say, a half a dozen, five, six in the whole country. We just didn't do that. And so we we paid a price, but we didn't get a benefit. The net result is we're now going to end up in a different situation, which is I call it back to the future. When I was born 75 years ago, Uh, It was right on the cusp of the vaccine and antibiotic miracles. Before that time, 
people lived with the understanding that death could strike them at any moment. Even I remember polio. I remember being terrified of rheumatic fever. Those are things we couldn't control. And in fact, we built America. We built the world in a world without vaccines and in a world without antibiotics. But you pay a price that we're beginning to understand. And that price is death is at your shoulder at all moments. And it seems that we're willing to adapt to that. We've adapted in the past. We'll adapt again. We have exiting the time, at least for now, where we have a free ride and don't have to worry about dying of an infectious disease tomorrow. Wow. Okay. So, so how do we do this? Because you know, you're right. You know, we're kind of in this interesting situation. And yes, history has shown us we can forge ahead and we can, you know, build society, but there is a cost to it. So as we reopen, do we, do we do it? You will pay the price. Yes, we do do it. I, I happen to agree. We don't have any choice because Americans seem to be undisciplined Mm -hmm. and we don't have either the leadership, the governments or the government apparatus that we need. We need leaders that are clear, consistent, credible, and compassionate. We need government governance that works. And we need a public health service, very much like an army that has unitary command from the top to the bottom. When the president says it's up to the governors, he's right. He doesn't have a tool he can use like he can use the military abroad. We don't have that tool. When the governors say it's up to the municipalities and the cities, I live in New York, and you can see the tension between the governor and the mayor. And the mayor might even, in some places, or the county leader may say, it's up to the local authorities. We don't have unitary command in public health service. If there's a lesson we learn from this, it's we need unitary command to protect us internally as we do externally. Our biggest threats in my lifetime have not come from abroad. Mm. They've come from diseases within our own country whether it was HIV AIDS or whether it was a number of other diseases, polio that I can remember, right. those are the big threats. Right. And we're not prepared for those like we are prepared for external threats. Right. Let's get back to our conversation with Dr. William Hazeltine, Chair and President of Access Health International. Joining us on the phone from Connecticut, he's also got a new book. It's called A Family Guide to COVID. And one of the things I love about this, Dr. Hazeltine, is it's a book that lives right now, but this is a fast-moving story. So you give people access to your website because you're going to keep updating this. Tell us what led you to write this. I remember uh, during the early days of HIV AIDS, so many people had questions and there was no place they could go for answers. This is even more serious than that because it's kids that are affected. Uh, If you're a parent, you have kids that are asking you questions all the time. I'm a grandparent and I've got a lot of grandchildren asking me questions and their parents asking me questions. And so I decided that I would uh, write a book to answer questions in a very simple way, the the kind of questions that kids are going to ask or parents will ask themselves and each other. Kids like, uh, what's happened, Mom? Why can't I go play with my friends? Or how long is this going to go on? Or will science save us? 
uh, adults are going to say things like, should I really put masks on my kids when they go to play with their friends? Should they play with any friends? What's the situation today? It changes, as we know. This is a, a ever-changing situation. So this is what I call a living book, uh, in the sense that the book will change along with our knowledge. Questions will disappear. Answers will change. There is no set, set of answers yet. So it's a living document, and it's been a lot of fun to do, and I hope it's uh, helpful. I have to say, you know, we just went through a conversation with my daughter last night. She's 17, you know, getting ready to be a senior in high school. Jason has um, a teenager the same age and another one uh, and a little one. But she was like, I just miss my friends, mom. And they've done the Zoom thing and they do everything. And you just, you do think about, like, we don't know what school's going to be like in the fall. You know, uh, you know, her world is being turned upside down and, and we're so happy we're healthy. But you do realize the mark that this is having you know, on a younger generation. Absolutely you do. And uh, it's at a time when young people have to get out. This is what young people have to do, whether they're children, whether they're teenagers. I've talked to a lot to do this book. I talked to a lot of kids. I rounded up every grandchild and uh, child I could find <laughs> and a lot of teenagers. You know, I talked to a teenage boy who said, this whole thing is a plot to keep me from my girlfriend. <laughs> That's life. That's what parents are dealing with. Yeah. No, they are. And, and I think we do think a, a lot about, as, as Carol mentioned, you know, kids going off to college and, and being deprived of that experience. But, you know, I think you provided some really good historical perspective in that regard, Dr. Hazeltine, that, you know, this is this is new to, to all of us in, in many ways. And, and yet, um, you know, this is something that as a society we've dealt with before, and we just have to learn to adapt in many ways. We do, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Is it is it safe to say, I mean, I was listening to a conversation on Bloomberg uh, Radio earlier just about a vaccine, and I know there are some folks that are saying, oh, we could get it, you know, later this year. What's the reality? And do we have to, until we have a vaccine, life will not be normal? Well, you know, we lived for, as I said, for centuries without vaccines. Yeah. So you can live. Secondly... Uh, there are things you can do. Other countries have shut this virus down almost completely, not completely, and it won't be gone completely. And we are going to have drugs that are temporary vaccines for anybody who's exposed. We will have drugs within a year that will prevent anybody from being exposed from falling ill. I'm virtually certain of that. Vaccines, I give it a 50-50 shot. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, as always, we really appreciate your time, Dr. William Hazeltine. The new book is called A Family Guide to COVID. And when you pick it up, uh, you should note, just as he said, it's a living book. And so you'll be able to uh, get into a website that will be constantly updated because the questions are changing. And as he said, the answers are changing. I mean, I think about the conversations we have now, Carol, versus what we're having a month ago, six weeks ago. I mean, we're in our 14th week of doing this broadcast this way. I know, right? Crazy. And, and I think what's also interesting and crazy is that there are still so many questions about kind of getting our head, you know, our heads around it and, and getting back to normal. And I think what he says is at some point, you know, you're going to have to get out there and yeah. there will be a price to pay for it. And consequences for sure. And yeah. we'll all have to adjust. All right. That was Dr. William Hazeltine, Chair President of Access Health International, his new book, A Family Guide to COVID. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics. It's been very busy on that front between that blockbuster number, or at least a number that caught people by surprise. Even as you dug down, you sort of got these elements that still made you say, if you were Carol Masser at least, Whoa! <laughs> so we're going to break that down as well as what we heard from Jay Powell, what we've heard so far, uh, the first of a two-day testimony that he has up on Capitol Hill. Uh, let's turn to Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Yelena Shalechva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. She joins us on the phone from Long Island. So, KH, I want to start with you. Jay Powell, what, what do we need to know? I mean, we've heard a lot from this guy over the past few weeks. He's been tip of the spear in, in many ways, or certainly mm-hmm. the Fed has. What's the key takeaway? Well, I the, the Fed chair, I think, is describing reality when he says that, yes, the economy, look at the May um, employment report, look at how much jobs rose. It's definitely coming off of the lows. I think what he said today is uh, it's a... Uh, maybe even the beginning of recovery, but still in much worse shape than it was before the uh, lockdowns, before everyone had to shut down. And I think that's what he wants everyone to remember. Yes, it's good that things are getting better, but they're not good enough yet. Uh, So I think that's a very important point. Maybe part of the reason he's saying this is because he does want to make it clear that what the data show you is there is still a need to help some people. Because the last thing he's going to do is tell Congress, Republicans or Democrats, that yes, you better get out there and, and, you know, renew that program, do this, do that, right? He's going to stay away from that. But by underscoring the fact that there's going to be a lot of people without jobs, even after the economy gets into recovery, I think that sends the message. So maybe that's part of the reason, but it's also how it looks. Uh, Yelena's going to get into the retail sales for us, but you know, you combine retail sales and jobs and a couple other things and you say, gee, maybe things well, are better than we thought. Actually, cue Yelena. Yelena, come on in, because you actually put out some research specifically on that retail sales report. And you said maybe slow down everybody don't get too excited about it okay so uh, actually uh chair powell today made a note of that and he acknowledged a stronger than expected gain in uh, the main retail sales but he ascribed it to the aid coming from the measures including the paychecks uh, protection program basically the fiscal support uh from and, and monetary policy support uh as uh, the crisis was evolving so uh, he also said that uh, the Fed remains agnostic with respect to the strength of the recovery. And that uh, is the theme of all of his uh, latest remarks. So what he's trying to say is that in case of retail sales, for example, that this rebound uh, follows a significant drop in activity. So in, uh, in terms of uh, retail sales, a 22% decline over the previous three months uh, was followed by an 18% uh, rebound. But uh, activity remains, still remains below its pre-crisis uh, level. Right. So uh, retail sales are 8% below what we saw back in January. So right. it will take time for that to, to get back to the trend. 
Right. It's easy to come back from such a terrible level. And you do wonder about, okay, so what's going to be the economic momentum on the other side, Kathleen, especially when, you know, we see stories about temporary jobs loss, temporary job losses will become permanent ones. And you talk about, you know, a lot of folks. Well, that's what we don't know, right? I think, and I think it seems, it seems logical, right? It seems we, how can we conclude that a lot of small businesses don't just feel shattered and not, not only feel shattered, they are shattered. They're not coming back. So, and I think that's I think that's one of Jay Powell's biggest worries. He, he's mentioned that many times, that, and that's such an important part of the economy. But we don't. That's one thing we don't know. And I would say never underestimate the appetite of the American consumer. And once people mm-hmm. can get out and go to more stores, I don't know about you guys, but on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, most of the retailers are still closed. Right. So I just wonder myself if maybe this this rebound may continue more than people think because if there's one thing people do in this country they shop and they've been locked at home I then say, i then i think the Kathleen, question is how long you because you're with me right no i'm well i'm totally with you but jason man he needs some new sneakers he left <laughs> them at See? work he's like i think no, there's a little withdrawal going on there but i would but i think it's a really interesting point kathleen because it's a social I mean, thing for all of us we too. are seeing yes. people you know when they are allowed to really get out there i mean numbers notwithstanding even the conversation we just had with the coo of fedex office she basically like look i'm in dallas people are out the malls are yep. bumping and you know this is going to happen wait i want to throw in because well, i want to get jay can i just want to let um Yelena in on this but first i just want to remind i'm going to be speaking to rob kaplan on um daybreak uh, australia stuff. today at 6 30 p.m and of course he lives in Dallas. He lives in Texas. That's one of the things I definitely want to ask him about. Lena. Yeah, and they're in phase three. So, Yelena, what do you want to add? Just, you know, I agree with you guys on uh, the spirit of an American consumer. I'm itching myself to go out there and spend some money. But as long as you have this money, as long right. as you have the means to spend. So, th- remember, the, the gap is still huge between uh, the trend, the pre-crisis trend in wage income and what we are seeing at the current levels. That was more than offset by stimulus checks uh, over the uh, at the peak of the crisis. But what happens going into the uh, second uh, half of the year when this support uh, gets uh, reduced and or eliminated? So that's what I want to see. You, you want to see whether people actually have the money to spend. It, they, they may yeah. want to. They may want to get out and shop. But they well, may wouldn't not it be a nice surprise if all these programs that have started, including the Main Street Lending Program, actually end up getting some money in the pockets of the business owners, who then really can say, even if I'm not at full speed, I'm getting back. You know, I'm getting back online. I'm working again. I want. You know, I've got to. I can bring some of my employees back. I think that's that's the X factor that nobody knows right now. Yeah. 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 It's one of the many, many things we still don't know uh, about what happens next. All right. Thank you both for a spirited conversation. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor for Bloomberg. She's back home in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Yelena Shalecheva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone from Long Island. So many questions, Jason Kelly. So many questions. Are you antsy to get out there and go shopping? Not really. Not not really to go shopping. Like, I, I, I was a little antsy to, like, go, you know, have a burger, which yeah. I did. And that was great. Um, yeah. But, you know, I also have the benefit of the suburbs. And, yeah. you know, I can it's get different. out and about a little bit more. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
let's talk about an aspect of the coronavirus crisis that we actually haven't spent as much time on of late. So I'm excited we get to talk about this story. It concerns antibody tests and the headline in the story that will be in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week says antibody tests are everywhere now and confusing everyone. Kristen Brown is a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. She wrote it. She joins us on the phone from California. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he's on. He's with us from Brooklyn. So, Joel, help us understand how you got to this story and why it's important. A couple of weeks ago, um, I called Kristen and said, um, you know, I'm basically thinking about doing an antibody test for myself. Uh, what do I need to know? And she was basically like, uh, kind of don't bother because <laughs> nobody understands anything about what the results are. I, I'm being a little uh, facetious here, but like, I think the, the main thing that um, Kristen uh, and I kicked around on that call and that she writes about is, is that really we don't know what these antibody tests and the outcomes really mean yet. And I, that is a lot, adding just a, a whole level of confusion to the coronavirus conversation because you might have had it and tested positive for it, but this antibody thing, it, we don't really understand if that actually makes you, you know, it shows you any immunity to the virus at all. Um, Kristen, what did you learn while you were reporting this? Yeah, so interestingly, I so I should disclose, I actually did have an antibody test myself because I was curious, even though I know they're worthless. And I think that that's the really interesting thing is even if you're up on the science and you understand that we know that antibodies probably confer some immunity, but we don't know how how much immunity. So it means that the test really isn't going to change anything about your life, right? You still have to be careful. But there's this desire to have this feeling that maybe you have some protection against this virus. And I think there's this really interesting thing going on where testing companies, doctor's offices are now sort of preying on that, that desire, that hope we all have. You know, several of our Bloomberg colleagues forwarded to me emails they got or text messages they got from their own doctor's office saying, you know, book an antibody test today. We've got them. Even though the science says and good medicine says there's no reason for an individual to get this test because the test isn't going to change anything about your behavior. Kristen, I feel like with everything with COVID-19, it's not easy. It's not simple. And that includes, you know, these tests. And what's tough is there's so many out there. It feels like everywhere you look, you know, there's an antibody test. What's interesting is you talk about even in your story how people are starting to vet antibody tests, I guess, to figure out which ones maybe perhaps are more reliable. But, you know, I felt like this was going to be the holy grail to some extent, you know, in addition to a vaccine, to being able to reopen safely. And now what we're hearing is maybe that's not the case. You know, I, I should say that it's not that the tests are completely worthless, right? There are some scenarios in which these tests can be very useful. And so it is important that test manufacturers have very good, highly sensitive, highly specific tests. Uh, those, those cases include you know, public health surveys when we're testing swaths of the population to try and understand, okay, how many people have really had the virus in this community? How many people are asymptomatic? It also includes occupations like healthcare workers or, you know, even people at grocery stores 
where those people have to be performing their jobs and interacting with a lot of people. And maybe it makes sense to have the people dealing with people who are sick with COVID to be people who have antibodies already. Because even if we don't 100% know how much immunity they confer, at least we're making a more educated guess about who is safer to be on the front lines there. So there definitely is some value in these tests, just, you know, probably not to you or me. And let's let's bring in um, the the thought of the FDA and all of this, right? Because these, these tests, um, uh, you know, what kind of regulations are around for them right now? Right. Yeah. So this is a really interesting thing. The FDA in March, when these tests started coming on the market, were like, "Hey, we want you guys to get the test out there as soon as possible." Basically, just go ahead and do it. We're not going to intervene. And what happened, and the FDA has said this, is that they had a bunch of bad actors. They had people marketing tests that they said were FDA approved when they're not. They had people marketing tests that performed really poorly, uh, marketing those really aggressively. And so then last month, the FDA had to step in and sort of walk back their earlier position and say, okay, if you're an antibody test maker, you need to apply to us for an emergency use authorization, which is the same uh, same authorization that the diagnostic test makers have to get. So, uh, but that hot still hasn't right. solved the problem because now we still have all of these tests on the market that are, you know, in the pipeline for approval but haven't gotten approval yet and are still on the market. Right, and as you said, there's about 200 of them with 18 just getting receiving uh, formal emergency user authorization. It's an interesting story and just another smart story um, and a reminder of how complex this all is. Kristen Brown, thank you so much. Bloomberg News healthcare reporter uh, joining us on the phone from Oakland, California. Of course, our thanks to Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from Brooklyn. Yeah, and you can check that story out. It's on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal already, and you can see it in print later this week in the Remember upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We talked about, like, this was going to be so important and so helpful. And I have to say, I talk to people anecdotally, and they say it's a mess as well. So, we'll see. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Just about 11 minutes left to go in today's trading session. And as you know, we've been bouncing around, but we're just... A little bit off our highs, but nonetheless, we've got more than 1% rallies on each of those major equity averages. Let's talk about uh, the close with Henley Smith, Senior Vice President and Senior Relationship Manager at New York-based Stonecastle Cash Management. They've got uh, $22 billion in FDIC-insured institutional cash deposits under advisory. And he joins us uh, once again on the phone from Connecticut. Henley, nice to have you back uh, with Jason. It's great to hear it's great to hear that busy traffic report out in New York. So maybe <laughs> things are ultimately getting back to normal. I don't know about that. It's it's slow going, yeah. certainly in New York. Um, yeah, tell me, you know, what are you seeing in terms of activity picking up and maybe what it tells you about, you know, where the financial markets go from here? 
Well, you know, we've, as we've talked about before, we've kind of on the leading edge of what was gone on in the last uh, 10 weeks uh, as investors come into a fully insured cash management situation. They want to be in, in liquidity and insured principal. So we were the benefactors of that. So mm. we've seen a lot of institutional clients. You uh, saw a rush into on. that? You definitely did see a big rush into that. Oh yeah, uh, you know we were up over the last couple of uh, weeks. Uh, you know, well over five billion dollars in new assets that came in because wow. people wanted to protect interest, uh, principal, and they wanted liquidity. So we were the benefactors of that, um, and we continue to see that. So I think that the allocation to cash, even at these low interest rates, uh, will continue to grow both on the institutional level as well as the individual level. And I think that's kind of the normal now. Uh, you know. We saw that coming out of 2008-9, and I think that you're going to see that uh, is going to be with us now as people build, maintain, and control rainy day reserves for what might be happening next. Well, that whole notion of a rainy day reserve, I mean, I would imagine that becomes a little more popular in a time like this now, right, uh, Henley? Oh, absolutely. And you would think that, you know, with these ultra-low interest rates, people would be kind of running for the hills. And, of course, you're seeing... Obviously, stock market prices move up and down, but for the most part, moving up. But yeah, we've seen that on the institutional level. Uh, and also on the high net worth, individual savings rates are up. That's because, of course, there might be some stimulus checks there. But we see uh, in the family office market in particular, and we've talked about this before, uh, where uh, cash as a part of their, alloc- uh, of their total portfolio is, is anywhere from you know, 15 to 20% now. Are you worried about some of the turmoil that we've seen in the past in those money market funds? Well, you know, again, I think that uh, it just kind of exposes some of the the, the concerns that we've had up to this point in these collective investments. So I think the real uh, greatest safety control can be seen through direct ownership of cash assets. I know that's tough on the retail side, but for institutions, you've seen more of it. They've been moving out of these collective money market funds because in many ways they're, you know, they are impacted by what their neighbor does, and they don't want to do that. So direct yeah. ownership continues to be the way that people are going, and that's what we've seen. So, so i got to ask you uh, a little bit of a turn here. It's sort of back to where we started a little bit, Henley. What's it like in Connecticut? What, what are you seeing? Because, you know, we're trying to get this, this picture of what's going on across the country. And even with the tri-state area, you know, Carol and I are comparing notes. You know, she's <laughs> just outside of New York City. I'm in the Westchester suburbs, and our lives are very different. I, I wonder what you're seeing. Yeah, just the same as you. I mean, I think more people are getting out a little bit more. They're being courteous and kind, and they're wearing masks in public uh, public areas. I'm in an office building here in Connecticut, in Newtown, Connecticut, and uh, start people are starting to come back a little bit. But you know, the offices have to change a lot. Of as you know, Wall Street is a lot of open uh, yeah. desks, and that's going to have to change a little bit. So. Uh, you know, slowly, we're, restaurants are coming back. Uh, people are eating under tents in, in parking lots, which is great to see. But uh, so, yeah, slowly but surely, I think uh, the, the tone is changing to the positive, and it's great to see. Okay. And so when you see some of the headlines like a spike in Florida or Texas or China, you know, shutting down schools in Beijing because of a new market-related, you know, open or food market-related, um, you know, round of the virus, that doesn't concern you? Uh, well, certainly it does. Um, but I think, again, forearmed is, or forewarmed is forearmed. We know a little bit more about it now. Yeah. We know to be expected now. Mm. So, I mean, you know, 10 weeks ago, it kind of came out of nowhere to everybody. 
Uh, so now I think everyone's, you know, their, their awareness is much more heightened. And I think it, with that realization, I think, uh, you know, this is a manageable thing. Hanley, when, when do you start to think about the elections, the November elections? You know, we get to a point where that becomes a major focal point of our market conversations and investment conversations, because we know that that can certainly, you know, change what the outlook is. Um, is it too soon? Do you think about it? No, I, I think people are thinking about it all the time. I mean, I, and I think that's one of the underlying things that's been happening in this kind of, uh, you know, chaotic uh, world that we now live in, which we've kind of been stumbling into. We, we talked about this before, about baby black sp- swans that right. keep yeah. happening and happening and happening. We've talked about that before. So I think the, the trick of this particular market cycle is that we've had these political undertones in it, and that's just going to on, only supercharge what we're doing. So as we get closer to November, I, I think the volatility we can count on just continuing to increase. Uh, so we're just trading from headline to headline to headline. Yeah, it's a really interesting... Uh... It's a really interesting time, uh, to say the least. Uh, Henley, really nice to catch up with you. You know, always a pleasure to get your perspective on things. And, you know, it's a It's a unique to one, too. Yeah, it totally is. It totally is. All right, Henley Smith yeah. Sr. Go ahead. Go ahead, Henley. No, I just said, you know, cash is kind of the leading thing. And yeah, uh, it's, it's an asset class that uh, is getting on more and more important as we, as we go along. Yeah, there, for there, sure. There's several times this year I wish I was more aggressively <laughs> yeah, in cash. That's Just going to say. True. All right, Henley. Good to hear your voice. Henley Smith, Senior Relationship Manager at Stonecastle Cash Management, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. I like, you know, when we're able to talk to people at their offices. Like, that's sort of a nice sign. I mean, clearly, we're not talking to a lot of people in skyscrapers in Manhattan, although, you know, some of our colleagues are uh, back there in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here and again. I've been Kathleen there the whole Hayes. time. Yeah, though. Yeah, a lot of Michael our colleagues. McKee but you're right. And, others, and our team, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's hard to get your head around this idea that kind of where we are in different states and in different localities in the cycle, you know, that part of the reason that things feel a little bit better around here is because I dare say our leadership, our state leadership and our local leadership, like really locked it down. Yeah. You know, are you messing with my governor Murphy? No, no, no. I'm saying versus (laughs) Texas or Florida. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In other parts of the country. I I think it's just a huge, huge difference. Yeah. 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 I would never mess with Murphy. I'm not a knucklehead. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.